Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. We have such a good episode today. Brian Baumgartner is here. He plays Kevin on The Office, amongst many other awesome things that he's done. We are going to get into this conversation. You're going to love it. Before we do, I just want to tell you about something that's happening tomorrow. I don't want you to miss it. I am doing a monthly Zoom workshop the first Friday of every month. If you want more information, if you want to join me there tomorrow, you can go to kathyheller.com slash lit up. This is going to be all about abundance, abundance in making the money that you've been wanting to make and abundance in making the impact that you came here to this world to make. We're going to be getting into that. Not only are we going to have incredible workshops, we'll be having guests drop by, people that you've heard on this podcast. There will always be time for Q&A, and this is guaranteed to get you lit up, and it's guaranteed to give you that extra tool, that extra spark, that extra oomph to help you take the things that come through when you're listening to this podcast and actually start to put it into action. This is the most inexpensive membership that I have. I think that this is something that you will love. Of course, you can go into it and do it month to month. If you want to check it out, go to kathyhar.com slash lit up. I can't wait to see you guys there tomorrow. All right. Well, you guys are in for such a treat today because Brian Baumgartner is here. Like I said, he is an Emmy, SAG, and Webby award-winning actor, producer, New York Times bestselling author, and podcast host. Most of you probably know that he played Kevin Malone on The Office, but he's also been on Arrested Development, Everwood, Last Comic Standing, Licensed to Wed, Four Christmases, and it just goes on and on. Also, he has a new book that just came out. And for all of you Office fans, this is the book that you need to have in your life. It's called Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, The Ultimate Oral History of the Office. And it's already a smash hit. Brian and executive producer Ben Silverman basically compiled hundreds of hours of exclusive interviews with almost every major player on The Office, from Steve Carell to John Krasinski to Jenna Fisher, Rain Wilson, Greg Daniels, Ricky Gervais, the network execs, the directors, the crew. It's just incredible. They talked about all the absurdity, genius, love, passion, the dumb luck, and the magic that went into creating one of the most beloved and most watched television shows of our time. We're going to have the link to the book in the show notes so that you can grab a copy and buy a copy for all of your friends and family who love The Office so much. It is the perfect holiday gift. And you should also listen to Brian's podcast, The Office Deep Dive with Brian Baumgartner, where he sits down to have in-depth conversations with the cast and crew of The Office. You're going to get to hear all about the behind the scenes of the show, their favorite moments, never before told stories and secrets, and what makes the show even more popular today. I had so much fun chatting with Brian. He's not just super talented and funny, but he's so genuine and there's such a level of goodness and integrity about him. You are going to love what he has to say. And even if you are not an Office fan, if that even exists, which maybe it does, I think that you're going to find this conversation fascinating because we talk about what makes this show and this kind of content why does it have such a legacy? So without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Brian Baumgartner. Brian, I am so happy. I am so happy that you're here. My listeners are so happy you're here. You could just leave right now and we would all be satisfied that you just were here. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Here's the thing. You had a book come out yesterday. We're going to get to that in a second because I want everyone to go and get it. I just have to say to you, you are so lovable. Oh, you are so freaking lovable. I just feel like that's your superpower. What do you think? Thank you. I'll I'll accept it. I will humbly and graciously accept it. Look, I think I'll give the credit to Kevin. How's that? I'll give the credit to, uh, to Kevin Malone. I uh, <laughs> I think there's well, there's just there's so much to say about him and and the show and why I think that is. But I think ultimately, 
look, we're all trying to find little moments of beauty. And uh, Kevin says in an episode about something, the most mundane thing ever, he attempts to win back a couple of parking spots from some guys he considers bullies who work in the Scranton office park. And he has this line that sticks with me. um, It's just nice to win one. Mm. And I think that whether or not Kevin succeeds all the time, that sort of striving to just win one, a small victory in life is something that I know everybody can relate to and, and feel for. So I think that's a big part of it. Are you going to just make us all cry? I mean, I have to say there is a goodness that is so palpable in you. And I did feel that way when Rain Wilson was here and when Jenna Fisher was here too. It's just kind of like Greg Daniel. I don't know who was behind it, but like this ability to spot human beings who show up and are like present in the moment and are just able to like open their heart. Like, no big deal. Like I am blown away. And that really probably is the success of what you guys did together. The magic that was that show. Um, it's in the humans. It's in the, the goodness in you guys. I think, I think you're right. I mean, it, truthfully, when I'm asked what I miss most or it is about the people and that's, you know, that was in obviously largely the other actors that I was working with, but it wasn't just that. It was a kind of an incredible selection of humans across all of the jobs on this television show. And, you know, when I set out to write this book and to to look back at the journey, it really was about trying to figure out why now, at its simplistic base, why now the show is more successful and more people are watching it than ever before. Is that true? I didn't know that. I thought it was always successful and forever and ever. Amen. So for a large part of the run on the on NBC, we were the most watched scripted show on NBC. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, yes. But by the same token, we weren't like friends, I would say, or even Seinfeld. You know, we, we hadn't sort of reached that NBC, like you're now anointed as the next biggest thing in the history of the world. And so I think that's for me what, what was so surprising. I mean, totally successful. Emmy Awards, all, I mean, all of that stuff happened, but it was still like we were just this little engine that could. And I think in part, what you were talking about is the reason why, right? Like, um, yep. I had a conversation with Kevin Riley, who was the head of NBC at the time, and he started talking about television comedy, specifically network television comedy. And he was talking about, say, like Friends. We're coming out of the era of Friends. And he said there'd become something that was just understood that it had to be in television comedy, which was, it has to be funny and the people have to be good looking. And he (laughs) was like, it was, that was never the rules. You know, I I don't want to disparage anyone from longer ago than 20 years ago, but that wasn't the deal. Go back and you look at the comments like, no, I mean, those are, but it had just become this thing and it was sort of had sort of become indoctrined at NBC and with the other executives that that was true as well. And I think here comes this show, which is supposed to be because of the way it was shot documentary style, unknown people that happen to live in Scranton, Pennsylvania, 
and cameras come in and start shooting them. And, you know, Allison Jones, the casting director, probably, I don't know, the greatest comedy casting director ever. Yeah, um, clearly. And Greg Daniels and Ken Quapis, who directed the pilot, was like, let's find people that we find really interesting. And and I and just sort of saying, like, I believe if you find people who are interesting, then that will be interesting to watch. And it doesn't matter what they look like. Uh, and so I think that that made us unique. Yeah. We were a collection of people who had not gotten famous, you know, at that moment in time. And we were just working together to try to create the best show that we could. And you totally succeeded. And we live in a time where there is such an empathy deficit. And I cannot think of another piece of content. It like makes me cry where there was such a palpable goodness to the vulnerability of each of those characters and the funniest things that have happened on TV, in my opinion, ever. But aside from that, it was the just crack your heart open. You care about these people because you see yourself in these people and they let you see yourself in them because there is no there is no errors. There is no affect. There is no ego almost. It's like, it was one and done. It's a once in a lifetime. And God, I, I, we, we need that. Like the world needs that show. We need that to come home to, to keep coming back to. And it's almost like we, we didn't merit it right now or something because mm-hmm. it's so dark and that was so unique. And I hope that we get back to a place as a society where we merit to have that back because it really is more than just the funniest thing you've seen. There was something else going on and it's so obvious and it's who you are and it's what I just said to you and it's what you just sort of said to me. And um, that's probably why you're saying it continues to simmer and marinate and it continues to just grow. It's like the, the wolf pack, just people, people keep joining it Um, Because they can feel that. I don't know if they would know how to articulate it, but I promise you they feel exactly that. Yeah. You know, a lot of stuff that I discovered through talking to people and my producer told me the other day, I talked to 44 different people and have well over 100 hours of recorded interviews with people for the book. And one of the things that I wasn't totally cognizant of, but our director of photography early on, Randall Einhorn, would talk about Greg had this kind of, he called it almost like a mantra. Like he would walk around like a a blithering idiot saying like truth and beauty, truth and beauty, truth and beauty. I was like, what, you know, what does that mean to you? And he said, well, it's about finding, he wanted the cameras. He wanted the actors. He wanted everyone who was involved in the show to be truthful, to have it be truthful that a shot isn't presented, the camera has to find it, that there's that, mm. that you have to look beneath uh, everything and not have anything sort of set up. That's the whole genesis of this documentary style. And he described Mike Schur, who's like, you know, has, uh, you know, create, went on to create Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, all these shows. He talked about something that Greg had, had told all the writers, which was imagine the show is a, a parking lot right? It's a giant parking lot that goes on as far as the eye can see, just endless concrete. 
And then there's just rows of parking spots and maybe the lines are a little faded, but it just keeps going on and on parking space after parking space. You can't hardly see. And there's some cracks in the concrete. And he said, but then what happens is, is a couple of the cracks, you just have a little flower that comes out. And he's like, that's what I want us to find the little bit of beauty in this mundane world. And, I went back two weeks ago for the first time in a really long time. And they kept asking, when was the last time you were back? And I honestly, I can't remember. I think I maybe was in the general area at some point and just kind of drove by and had the like feels or whatever. But I went back to the space uh, about a week and a half ago and I showed up. And that was one of, after talking to everybody, that was one of the things that, that struck me in the cover of the book, right, is, you know, Pam's drawing of the building right that drawing because of what it was in the show and it gives you the feels and it's kind of this beautiful thing michael scott described it as um, something beautiful you get there when i got there it's not attractive and it's on a very very industrial street there's like welding that happens across the way and a train that comes by (laughs) weirdly that seems to go nowhere and it's a, it's a cul-de-sac. There's no ins and outs, and it's all very industrial. It's not attractive, but yet there was a place that beauty was found there for people that were watching and for the people that experienced it there. And I think that almost becomes a, a metaphor for the whole show itself. I can't believe that I'm literally crying. I didn't expect that, but I think be, I think because... We talk about this on the show all the time. I started this show because I want every person to feel like they matter. Like every person deserves to feel seen, whether you live in Missouri and you're just a, we had a guy who listened to the show. He used to work at a dog food factory and he wound up making cheesecakes on the side and he wound up opening a cheesecake shop. And that story just, it just lights my heart up like a Christmas tree because he deserves to feel happy, right? And that's kind of what every character on the show and the writing and everything about the show was like, hey, you might think that you just live this mundane life. You might think that it's not LeBron James. It's not Serena. It's not whatever. And yet it really matters. And yes, you're seen like we get it. We see you. Yes. And that is so fascinating. Uh, maybe your show here was was born out of some weird residual in the back of your mind of our show, because the, the way that I kind of end the book and how I ended every single interview that I did was I played them a clip, which was the final words that were ever spoken on The Office. Mm. And it's um, basically Pam, Jenna Fisher, the character of Pam is, is basically asked, and I'll paraphrase the first part, basically asked, you know, why did they make a documentary about Dunder Mifflin? She yeah. says, I don't know why this was a, a good subject of a documentary. And she says, um, but there's beauty in ordinary things. Isn't that kind of the point? And for me, that Greg Daniels wrote those words and that that's how the show ended for me, that was the point. And I think I get talked to all the time about comfort. The show brings people comfort. 
and trying to get like at the root of that. And I think it's exactly what you just talked about. The building is not beautiful. The people in it, the people in it don't look don't like- Don't you dare say that. Don't, don't look like they're on the cast of Friends, but an ordinary person has beauty and value. And I think that's why when people are going through a hard time, even though on its surface, snarky things are said, inappropriate things are said, bad behavior is done, chili is spilled on the floor, like all of this ridiculousness. But at its heart, these are people that care about each other and are yep. and, and the show is trying to search for beauty within these ordinary people who work at a paper company. This is like the most beautiful conversation. I, uh, I flew to New York to see Ben Platt in the show, Dear Evan Hansen. I saw it four times. I was obsessed with it. And I was like, why is the whole, I mean, I know why I love it, but like the whole world came to see this show, right? And it was the same thing. It was like, it's about a person who's just an ordinary person who's like, does anyone see me? Does anyone care? And it's like, that is the office is like for the person inside of you, when you go to sleep at night, you hit your head on the pillow and you're, it's just you. And you're like, does it really matter? Like my light, who I am. And it's like, yeah, like it is like, there is beauty in ordinary things. So everybody, the book that we're talking about, Brian's book just came out. Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, the ultimate oral history of the office. And it's incredible. Like you literally, like you said, sat with all of these people what inspired you to write the book? Because you have already done so many things and we'll talk about your podcast and all that. What made you say, like, I want to put this in a book? Um, there, there's a couple things. Primarily, it was uh, what I talked a little bit about before, which was we're a big hit now. Uh, someone just told me the other day, right? Like everyone's talking about Squid Game and Succession and all of that. More people are watching The Office than are watching any other television show. The young, hot, hit, new shows, people are still watching it. And so for me, it literally was. Why? Yeah. What? Wait, what? How did this happen? You're not... (laughs) You're not by, I think this is how television works. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not as old as the history of television, but I'm pretty sure that eight years since you filmed anything, it's not normal that more people are watching it then right. than watching it when it was brand new. Right. Uh, and so it was for me really like um, wanting, to, wanting to find out why and going back to the origins of the show from Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant in jolly old England <laughs> to bringing it to the States, who was chosen to run the show. I mean, there's some crazy stuff about that. Like Greg Daniels, he'd never been the showrunner, the boss of a scripted television show with real life people. No right? way. I never he, knew that. That's he, insanity. That's he crazy. Created, he created King of the Hill. He worked on The Simpsons, SNL, but like he hadn't done that. The main second editor that was brought on eventually, Claire Scanlon, never edited a scripted television show before, ever. And now she is like the hottest, biggest, either director or woman director in television comedy now. You've got Randall Einhorn, who his name... I don't know. It feels like if you look at FX, he executive produces now every 
show on <laughs> FX, like, but like from, you know, or at least has from like seasons of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia to Fargo, you know, like all of this crazy stuff. He had never shot as a director of photography, scripted television, and then had never directed anything, period, and is now directing everything. So it was like this weird, like, I think these guys might have some potential. I mean, like, truly, like, that. this Brian guy, maybe he'd be a good actor to have in our little show here. I mean, like, just that. that. So going back and examining, like, why oh. were these people chosen? What were the gifts that they had that potentially can give us some clues as to the way the show was shot, how it was shot, what was interesting, what was interesting for the people creating the show to be done. As somebody said also, and I don't, don't want to leave them out, people talked about like our writing staff was like the Harlem Globetrotters of writers. It was like, you know, Mindy Kaling, Paul Lieberstein, Mike Schur, Lee and Jean, uh, Jen Salad, all these people who are now like, you know, doing whatever they want on what, whatever platform they want to be doing it on. And so just that assembly of people. So anyway, I just went off a huge tangent, but basically like going back and looking at what happened, are there clues to what happened when the show started that could make you see into the future almost 20 years to say, oh, okay, that's why people are loving it now or whatever. So that was really the start of it for me. And in terms of a book also, and I say this more, just, I think it'll be fun for fans. We had, uh, again, like crazy, is that a real story that thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures still photographs exist of television shows across the land. And we had a NBC photographer, his name is Chris Haston, who shot our show you know, who was like, did the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and did, you know, Cheers and Friends and, you know, all of these shows have been around. And very early on in the show, he uh, falls in love with Kate Flannery, who plays Meredith on the show. And they're like a partner, like they're still together. So now going back and looking at these photos, right, you don't have a photographer from the network, that, that is taking these behind the scenes photos of us. You have the guy who like hangs out with us at parties and that we go out to the wow. corporate photographer is brought into our family is now a part of us and is like, well, one, I want them to look good, of course, because I want to be good at my job. But two, like, oh, these people I really like <laughs> and was able to say, hey, Brian, we go over there and do this thing. And instead of me being like, and I'm talking about the later jaded years, of course. Like, no, photographer, I'm doing <laughs> something else right now on my iPhone or whatever. It was like, oh, sure, Chris, what do you want? Like, oh, okay, sure, you know. So there's like 100 plus photos that have never been seen before. That is um, so fun. Really it's such a good Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa present. This exactly. is such a good gift. You guys should go get the book and then get three others because you know that's a slam dunk. You know yeah. that that's a slam dunk gift. I want to talk more about The Office, but before we do, because there's this whole person here, you. And by the way, for those of you listening, Brian's done lots of other things besides The Office, but obviously The Office is super special and the book just came out. But I want to talk a little bit about your journey, like you becoming an actor. You know, that is not an easy road. That's not something that anyone should take for granted the fact that you became so, so, so successful at it. Like, 
what was the journey to landing such significant roles? Like, how did that happen? Um, well, first off, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Specifically, I wanted to be a professional baseball player and play first base for the Atlanta Braves. Ugh. That was what, it was very specific dream. Yeah, and, that is. you know, as like anyone who has that dream as a young person, the likelihood that that's going to happen is not great. I was a pretty good baseball player and that's what I wanted to do. So very quickly. Um, and for those of you listening, you can't, you have to use your mind vision. Um, when I was born, my knee straight, right? My right foot was out at a 45 degree angle ish, maybe 35 degrees. I don't know, but it was pointed out. So like I was good at baseball and I wanted to pursue sports. And somebody said to me at some point, orthopedic surgeon said, well, look, you know, for you to be able to run faster, stronger, higher, whatever, we're going to need to fix this problem. It's an elective surgery. You could live the rest of your life without it, but why don't we go in and fix it, right? So they go in and essentially what they do, the bottom part of your leg, uh, well, they they make them in two pieces. They break that bone. Oh my God. You're, I know, sorry. I know, quickly, tibia, fibia, arrange the foot, put a brace in, then go back in, take the brace out. It's it's basically like you break your you break your leg on accident. This is what one does to heal a bone. This is not crazy stuff. Well, all of that happens. I'm told I'm in textbooks, but I don't know what that means because I've never seen the textbook, but basically... Uh, the cast, the splint, they call it, that they put on my leg, there was a chemical mismixture in this cast. So I was in the hospital, normal, what was going to happen. I was supposed to be in two or three days, whatever. And I kept saying, my, my leg hurts. <laughs> and they were like, okay, give them a little more drugs. My leg hurts, a little more drugs. And finally, they're like, his leg shouldn't still be hurting. Uh, this was days. So, right. So this wasn't like the same day. This was days later. They cut open the, uh, the splint and, uh, the bottom portion where my leg had been propped up had burned through to my Achilles tendon. And. Oh my God. Horrible. Oh. And so I, well, so basically it became a, a very significant issue and very quickly as I moved from wheelchair to walker to crutches to cane mm -hmm. over the course of a year and have to relearn how to walk, a future in professional sports becomes something that is un unlikely. Um, but I was active, so I needed to find an outlet. And really, that's where I started acting, was, was really born Unbelievable. out of that thing, which was really about me being active. And had nothing to do with me being a professional actor or doing theater forever or anything. It was just like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then, oh, okay, you know, I think I'm, you know, interested in this, pretty good at this or whatever. And so I continued to do it. And then very shortly before my senior year of high school, I went, oh, no, this is what I want to do. I had an experience going to Northwestern University, had a program for high school kids, has, I'm sure, between your junior and senior year of high school where they do theater. And I was like, oh, I could do that. And basically came home saying, no, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. 
So I was young, driven, sure, or at least that's what I thought. So I ended up going to, to college for it, ended up working in the theater, worked in the theater for a number of years, a lot of struggles, a lot of shows with very few people in the audience, and then gradually some bigger shows at bigger theaters and eventually decided that I know this is not cool to say, but it was my truth. I had been to Los Angeles and actually really, I loved it. Like I thought, well, this is great. Like the weather, what are you talking? Like, and I, cause I'd been in like Minneapolis and Chicago and New York and all the places. And so I went out and then once I arrived, packed up the truck and moved myself to Los Angeles, uh, I met Ben Silverman and Greg Daniels and the folks on the office about three to four months after I'd moved what? into town. Yes, but you have to hear the totality of that story to understand there was a lot of struggle in the theater, a lot of work before that happened. And this was what I did, right? I mean, this wasn't like, you know, trying out for a reality show or something like, I, you know, this was what I did. And, but yes, the fact that I met them and found that show so quickly, obviously that I'm very blessed. I mean, in the woo-woo world, what do they call it? Manifest? I don't know what they call it, but it's like magic that you, I mean, this is a three months later. It's just like, what? And if I'd come the next year, obviously I, I think would have happened. Probably if I'd come the year before, um, well, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, you know, it was just all sort of happened right at the, the right time. When I moved into town, they had started sort of releasing the shows that they were going to do and make pilots of and, I saw the British version and became a big fan of it and, and went, well, they're looking for unknown people. So I think I fit that bill. <laughs> Check. Check. What was your audition like? I'm curious because, well, I'd be curious anyway, but Jenna told us in detail what her audition was like. And I just want to know what your experience was like. Yeah. So, you know, obviously for the book, we examined very closely everybody's sort of, uh, story everybody's casting story some crazy stories so obviously i'm very familiar with hers mine is a little bit different so if you're an aspiring anything in film and television or theater an actor a writer a director i don't know if this is smart i wouldn't call myself the smartest guy but this to me seems so self-evident and it always surprised me back in the day i'm not that old but i, I don't even know if this is still considered cool because we're in this sort of new golden age of television, but there was definitely a thing where I would hear people say, actors, right, who would say, I don't watch television. I don't, I don't watch television. I read books or go to the theater. Right. Somehow that these other things were somewhat how more evolved or something. And this was always so confusing, so confusing to me back in the day because I was like, wait a second. You're going to go on an audition for a show and not understand what the aesthetic is, what kind of shows are on television. I mean, sure, you can know whether it's a comedy or a drama, but is there a live audience? Is it more theatrical? Is it like The Office, incredibly subtle and realistic? Is it melodramatic? Is it, you know, whatever? So all I did was consume television and I had seen the um, British version of the show. I loved it. And I said, this is the show I should be on. And so I had an agent at the time who said to me, 
Well, they're looking for unknown people, but not you unknown. Not like totally <laughs> unknown, right? And, and the point was to her, by the way, spoiler alert to the end of the story, she wasn't right. But, you know, oh, I think the point was more like, no, 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 they're looking for these like lifer, UCB, improv thing, you know, people who have shot pilot after pilot that never went or wasn't that successful, but everybody in town knows them and trusts them and knows they can do a good job. I mean, that's what they were saying. But uh, my manager that I had called Allison Jones and called and called and I got a meeting and I now to speed up the story, Allison Jones was like, great. Here are the sides. I want you to come in and meet Ben Silverman and Greg Daniels and Ken Quapas and and read for the role of Stanley. No and way. I thought, well, that's not good because I knew the British version of the show. And there was a character called Keith that they were clearly changing into the character of Kevin. And I said, that's the part that I need to play. And so I... Um, I made a bold choice. I don't know. I mean, I saying that kind of funny. I mean, I don't know. I didn't think of it as incredibly bold at the time as people have now told me since that it was, but I think I was too young or too new to know, but I went in in front of all these people and I read the sides for the role of Stanley as though I were Kevin. And they said, thank you very much. And I Amazing. I can't and I walked, believe you did that. I walked out of the room and they were like, and I was like, well, I don't know. How, I don't know that that went that great. They seem nice. And Allison Jones ran down the hall and was like, right, 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 wait, 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 wait. Um, we actually have this other role that we would like for you to, to read for. And that, that obviously was. You're like, what's this? Was really? <laughs> That's surprising. But, you know, there were things like, actually, because you brought up Jenna, I'm sure she told you this. You know, she had been around more, had met with Allison Jones before, and she did an incredibly bold thing to remind your listener. She called Allison Jones on the phone and was like, Allison, tell, you know, like, what's up? And you're not, you don't typically do that at all. And Allison sort of now famously said to her, dare to bore me. Yep. And so that's what she did. Yeah. You, yeah. Oh my God. Wow. It's, it's just incredible. The, the clarity you had. And that boldness to just commit. And Jenna said the same thing that they said to her, do you like being a receptionist here? And she just like took this long pause and like looked around and like, no. And then she realized that it was so much more in what she didn't say than what she would ever say. And they all laughed and she left and she's like, I either blew that or aced it. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but again, like a bold decision so I'm curious. Sorry, before you ask what you're curious about, because I'm curious to know what you're curious about, I will say part of that is what you get in this book. I'm not trying to go into sell mode, but, but you know, the story. Sell that, it! Sell no, this book! I want you to sell it. No, but the, the story you just told about Jenna, that is a very similar version of the story that I got out of her that is in the book. But in addition to that, right, I have conversation with Greg Daniels, Allison Jones, I believe Ken Quapas, all three of them with their own stories. And when I asked them, so who for you was the clearest choice early on? Everyone said Jenna. Like for them, 
like it was almost like she came in she did that with greg greg was like he he said to me i didn't understand what she was doing because she didn't appear to be acting this is what he, he said to me that's a direct quote i remember him saying it so well she didn't doesn't appear to be acting and he got very confused and so he as you know imp- improvising with her started asking her questions like where did you work before like he literally started to almost do like a job interview for a receptionist because he didn't kind of know what to ask her because she was being so genuine and truthful which of course was what he was looking for which i don't know whether she really knew that or not but like and so he just started basically his jenna's audition for him was essentially a job interview where she would answer as a receptionist named pam and i said you know yeah who was immediately there for me and i think i thought maybe because he's so specific and and so sort of feels on the outside to embody dwight would be rain like that would have been my guess that would be i think what i thought that they would say to me was like oh we knew rain he was one of the guys like my agent at the time thought like done a ton of theater had moved to los angeles had done a run on six feet under but not famous but kind of known weird uh kind of sensibility but anyway that's the other side of that story that jenna told you that's amazing so i'm sorry i'm an interviewer too so what were you curious i love you (laughs) no what i was gonna say this is what i'm curious about because this again and i've only met the three of you rain also right three of you so this is, again, what you all have in common. It's so striking is authenticity. And Jenna also said that, like, she decided to make this choice to, like, not do her hair and to, like, wear khakis that she had a hostessing job. She, like, wore these khakis. And she was like, I'm either going to be the dumbest person. And, of course, all the other women in the waiting room were, like, done up. And she's like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, who comes to an audition and, like, frizzes out their hair? Like, come on. And she did that anyway. So the question is, and this is like a bigger question about authenticity, because on this show, we've had so many different people come on. And one of the theories is that all day long, we're giving it, we're given a choice as humans between belonging and authenticity. And 99% of the time we choose belonging and to choose authenticity is, is really our soul's dream, but it takes tremendous courage And that is what you guys do just over and over and over and over again. And I want to know what you can tell our listeners about how to choose that, how to make that choice. Oh, man. I mean, that is probably way beyond my pay grade. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there's something about art. I worked in a theater with a theater that talked about our theater in this specific case was it was about the question. It was about questioning and that how much more interesting that is than, mm. than answers. Right. Mm. So like to bring it to the book, I think I'm going to get around to your question. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> like for me, like the idea of writing a book and having a, like a splashy cover page, seeing stories from the office. I don't know. There was like just 
Yeah, there are behind the scenes stories, right? But for me, what I attempted to do was they're all framed within an asking an honest question, which is what happened and how are we here on this show where we are today? What was the show really searching about? A lot of the stuff that we talked about earlier. And so I think this is what's occurring to me now. Tomorrow, literally my answer to your question might be different, but I think that being open to asking questions within art or just within life that just inherently has to open you up. If you're not decided, right, then you're open. I don't know that what's so current, good. That brings an authenticity that it's that it's real. I actually do something the opposite sometimes now in business. I've started to produce stuff because right there, you, you that can paralyze you as well. Like, on, like from a business perspective, if you're like, I don't know, let's question that for the next 72 days or something. And so something that, that at times that I do sort of in this newer incarnation of my other like business life, I will do the opposite, which is just, I will say something in a authoritarian like declaration, declar- De- dec- declarative, I would declarative. Can I buy a bell? Yeah. I've been talking a lot, declarative way, right? And I'll be like, you know, we should definitely rent a puppy for this party. I don't know. That was the dumbest example. For some reason, puppy popped in my mind. We should, definitely, we should definitely have a, have a puppy for this party. Hey, go order a puppy. <laughs> and then someone says, I don't know if we should have a puppy. Because you see, what will happen is if we have a puppy, and this is this is the worst example. But basically, I say something in the expectation that someone will say yeah. something back. Anyway, I think I got in the weeds there. Too. I got it. I get it. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think that it goes back to what I said about we live in a time where there's such an empathy deficit and what the office allows for, because there's no room for having conversations. It's like, you're this or you're this, you're that or you're this. It's like there is. And we had Adam Grant on the podcast, who's a smart guy. And he said, you know, in the expert's mind, it's very uninteresting. There's one answer in the beginner's mind. It's so much more interesting because there's like tons of possibilities, right? right? They haven't made up their mind. And he actually said the people who can predict things the best usually um, change their answer a couple of times before the prediction is actually due or whatever that means. Right. And, And that is inherent it's palpable uh, throughout the cast, throughout the writing. And just it's in there. It's like, there is a, there's a, there's a space, there's a space for that. Right. And I, I do love what you're saying. I, I think what people would want to hear from you though, also is it's a courage problem. What it comes down to with, with whatever pursuit someone has is people are so worried about not fitting in and so worried about being rejected that they won't start a podcast, audition for anything, show anyone their script. Like that is just paralyzing for people. And it really is. It's really, really a thing. So you being part of the the group of kids, that's like really the cool kids, like the nice kids and somehow being in Hollywood and staying true to like, your like, like a soul, like a realness. What do you say to people who are like, kind of, you know, in their own way, because they're so worried about not fitting in. And you're such a good example. And this whole crew and cast is a great example of staying, staying true. And yet 
you can be successful. That's typically not what is the model. It usually is, I can be successful if I sell out and sell my soul and look like every pretty thing out there. But you guys got to just be yourselves and do good work and get to be successful and have sushi whenever you want. So what do you say to people about that? (laughs) Well, I think, look, I, I suppose this is more unique again than it feels like it should be. But I will tell you another real difference. And I had come from theater. So this, again, this was sort of like, well, of course, this is what you need a set built. And we do tech rehearsals in two days. And that means you're going to be up all night long, like hammering nails into a set. Let's do it. Let's put on a show. But the simplistic thing to say is, and I don't take this for granted, is it's way easier to not sell out when you believe the work that you're doing is good yeah, and right. So I will, fair. like, Very I will fair. defend myself in that. And, and, and on this show, talk about there were people with no egos. People were doing the equivalent of hammering nails into a set. Like Jenna, myself, uh, BJ Novak, we were creating on MySpace, right? That was the social media du jour. We were creating fake <laughs> accounts for our characters on MySpace because the the ratings sucked so bad. We were like, how can we find a couple thousand more people to watch the show? And we went, oh, well, if Kevin Malone really worked at Dunder Mifflin, what would he do at his desk? Oh, he'd be on MySpace. So we started like blogging, like really like nerdy, like weird avant-garde theater where we're like, and I never broke character. So I'm like, hey, I'm here today. This is what's happening around the set. And and basically doing whatever we could because we believed so strongly in the product that was there. Yeah. That we just wanted it to keep going, even because even if it just made us laugh or we enjoyed it, or whatever. So that's the one thing. I think the second thing is I think that success, creating something good or memorable, and celebrity has become this weird soup that is really hard to separate. And so that whole idea of selling out in a certain way for me is about. That's about the celebrity part. That's not really about doing good work or creating a piece of art or whatever. And so really becoming a celebrity then becomes only about money. So then it's just, then it becomes whatever job you do, whether it's stock brokering or, or doing television, just your goal just simply becomes, I want to make money. And if your goal simply is just to make money, I guess kind of by definition, aren't you selling out? Like, isn't that sort of the, and I don't even say that in a bad way. Like you're just attempting to make money. But I think that if what you're trying to do is to create something that um, has the potential to affect people and has the potential to better yourself and the world. And I know that sounds like so self-important, but I feel like then it's about the work and then it's yeah. about staying true to, to the work and it's being true to yourself. 
You said everything. Before we keep going, I just want to give a shout out to a woman that I just love. Her name is Lori Harder. She's the founder of Light Pink. She's a best-selling author, a three-times fitness world champion, and she's a multi-passion entrepreneur. She's also been a guest on this podcast, and she has her own incredible show called Earn Your Happy that you should definitely listen to. It's like having a business bestie and life coach right in your pocket so you can learn the tools and strategies proven to help you grow yourself, your confidence, your income, and your business. Lori has been through so many ups and downs. She went from being a broke waitress, a barista, a retail associate, and personal trainer with massive anxiety and no belief in herself. She then became a multimillionaire in love with her life, and she's sharing all the wisdom she collected on her podcast with you so that you can jumpstart your own transformation. Earn Your Happy has over 30 million downloads and over 750 episodes, so there's plenty of incredible conversations to listen to, including chats with Patrice Washington, Dr. Joe Dispenza, Gabby Bernstein, Jen Sincero, and she even had me on the show, which was a lot of fun. It's time to create a life that you can't hide from, to put so much more on the line that your higher self is forced to come through. And Lori is going to give you that push to make it your reality. So go check it out. Listen to Earn Your Happy wherever you listen to podcasts. So I want to ask you a couple of things and then I want to remind everybody that you have an awesome podcast because I've read in the research that when people listen to podcasts, they tend to just add another podcast to their, what they listen to on their route or when they work out. So you guys have to go subscribe to the office deep dive with Brian, because it's so good. And you're going to get this all the time. But before we touch on that, um, I guess my question to you is for anyone who's listening, who wants to be an actor and specifically who wants to do comedic acting, you are, and you've been with amongst the best that exists. So what is one thing that you have come to understand about comedy that you would say to somebody, this is what I think you can have in mind when you want to be a better comedic actor? One thing. This one's easy for me. And it didn't come from me, but I've thought a lot about it and then got on a show, The Office, that it really applied to. I had a French director. His name was Dominique Sarand, which is a beautiful name in and of itself, that I worked with for a long time in the theater. And he said to me a number of times uh, and other people that comedy exists off the beat, that there is a specific rhythm that is set up And the bad example would be a live studio audience show that indicates very clearly when you should applaud, when you should laugh, what the joke is, that ba-dum-bum-chink, right? That rhythm, that old classic rhythm. But that true comedy, what really uh, makes someone laugh is something that surprises you. Mm. So when the beat is a little longer, than you expect it to be or or cuts you off or changes your expectation that somehow it changes what your expectation is that that to me to him to me now for sure is where comedy exists greg daniels tells me the story it's in the book he says the greatest joke that he ever heard was jack benny and there's a robber and jack benny the persona loves money whatever as Robert comes up, puts a gun in his face and says, your money or your life? And Jack Benny just pauses because this is something he needs to think about. And that's all based on what you know about this character that's created. Like, so there's behavior. And then that lo- the longer of that pause, you expect him to say, my life, but it waits. And the longer that beat is, the more awkward that beat is, 
the funnier it becomes. And, you know, one thing I think in terms of the comedy of The Office, there's usually a joke, usually Michael Scott or whatever. That's not what gets the laugh. The glance afterwards gets the laugh. Totally. Or the response, two responses later gets the laugh. So yes. that's a long answer to your short question. But okay. So off the beat is my so answer. Because you know how much fans love to hear this, I'm going to ask you, I know you probably have 14 of these that come to mind, but one of your your personal moments that you thought was the funniest, whether it was something Kevin said or something someone else did, a, a little piece of shtick, like what comes to mind for you as like, that was comedy gold. Like bring us back to that moment. Well, I think that the moment that more people said that got the biggest laugh, the biggest sort of extended laugh. I mean, there are a lot, especially Prison Mike comes to mind with <laughs> Steve. Like that was just, <laughs> but the one that more people said acknowledged was a moment that people couldn't keep from laughing was um, when Kevin sat on Michael's lap when Michael was Santa Claus. Um, that moment just was so perfect. And it was like 100% Steve Carell and his reaction to that, that event and the improv that ensued beyond that is, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there's a 14 minute blooper reel that's just that scene. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's. Okay, so when you guys buy Brian's book for your family and or friends, you have to also send them that blooper reel link because that is that is the ultimate Christmas gift, that combo. Um, so you have a podcast. It's called The Office Deep Dive. Real fast, do you love doing this podcast and why? I love doing this podcast because I'm genuinely interested in the people that I worked with and having conversations that are uh, like you have that are substantive and meaningful yeah. and that are, again, that are, are serious discussions about the show and what it did and, and moments uh, from it that changed all of us. So I, I have enjoyed it so, so much. And the book for me that, that came out of that was really my attempt to give a full, uh, long, extended history of everything that happened and the attempt to answer that that question is why why today why is it happening why are parents like parents are not just telling me this they are gleefully telling me that their eight and nine year olds are huge fans of the show and have seen it 12 times and i just keep thinking that seems a little young right (laughs) isn't that young sexual harassment i mean i don't know exactly where you go Sexual, here's a, here's a fun fact for you office trivia uh, people out there. The Office was the first half-hour comedy show in the history of television that had that deep, weird, creepy voice that said, the following program may be unsuitable for children under 13. Parental discretion. Never knew advised. that. The Office had that for the episode uh, Sexual Harassment. Where, amongst other things, again, don't know. We said it on network television. We can do it here. 
where there's a sex blow up doll with right. everything uh, visible. Yeah. Multiple discussions inappropriate about that. And finally ending with a scene that no one ever thought would end up in the show where uh, Dwight is trying to get Toby to explain to him where and what the clitoris uh. is. Yes. Is, should an eight or nine-year-old have that discussion? I don't know, but God bless them all. God bless them, everyone. Brian, God bless you. And everything you're doing is just... It's like lollipops and sunshine and candy cane. It's so good. It's deep. It's funny. It's wonderful. I know that all of you have literally at this moment, like you can do anything you want, but I have this feeling that you and Ed Helms and Steve Carell, like I have a feeling like it's hard to, to find something that feels as great. And so I love that each of you keeps milking this and writing books and doing the show and Jenna's, you know, and Angela, their show is also so successful. Like it's not just watching the show. It's, li- it's reading the books. It's listening to the podcast. So I just thank you for keeping it alive for us. We're so in love with it. And all of you. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you having me on. And let me tell you this too, for real, in truth, what you're doing is really, really important as well. Yes. Thank and you. so the people listening to you, well, they already know it, but I, Thank should, you. I should tell them anyway. You're Thank the you. sweetest. Tell us where we can buy the book and tell us where we can listen to the podcast. Every place. Oh, available wherever books are sold, which I think means like Barnes and Noble and Amazon and stuff, but also your local bookstores. I imagine they're there as well. And um, the uh, podcast, The Office Deep Dive is available Uh, similarly on iHeart, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. The best. You're so generous. You've done so many of these back-to-back last however many days your book just came out. You're nothing but a prince. I so appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. That was just so much fun. How awesome is he? All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, it's nice to win one. Celebrate the small victories in life. Number two, find the truth and beauty in the mundane world. Number three, there's beauty in ordinary things. Number four, make the bold choice to be authentic. Number five, questioning is more interesting than the answers. Be willing to ask questions that will inherently open you up. Number six, it's easier to not sell out when you believe the work that you're doing is good and right. Number seven, when you want to make something that can affect people, better yourself and better the world, then it becomes about the work. It's about being true to yourself. Okay, now I want to celebrate our alumni. So Rukia said, Kathy, it's been an incredible two years in your universe. I recorded a bonus podcast episode today inspired from your Instagram post. And because of made to do this January, 2020, I started my soul stories podcast. Kath, I released episode 98 today. Thank you a million times. Oh my gosh, Rukia, that is incredible. You're almost at a hundred episodes already. You should be so proud of yourself because that is just no small feat. I cannot wait for all of the podcast episodes that you are going to keep making. You can all go give Rukia some love. Her Instagram is at Rukia Michelle and her name is spelled R-U-K-I-Y-A Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E and go listen to her podcast. It's called Soul Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. I know that there's so much going on right now. There's holiday shopping to do. Some people are celebrating Hanukkah and there's so many things happening, traveling and everything else. It means the world to me that you're here. Soon you'll be hearing me talking with Rachel Ray and Malcolm Gladwell. So if you want to hear those episodes, 
as they come out. Make sure you subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, wherever it is that you listen. And if you know someone who's an Office fan, share this episode right now with them. Email them, text them the link, post about it on your social media and tag them so that they can check it out. And finally, tomorrow, 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 it begins the first Friday of every month. We are doing a 90 minute workshop and you can join me if you go to kathyheller.com slash lit up. This is guaranteed to light you up. We are gonna be talking about what are the tools you need What is the energy you need to bring in abundance? How can you make the money you want to make? How can you make the impact that you want to make? It's going to be so good. It is guaranteed to light you up. If you want more information, you want to sign up and see me tomorrow on Zoom, go to kathyheller.com slash lit up. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have an amazing weekend and I'll talk to you Monday. Ever try to search for something you couldn't see at all? Try to climb a mountain, but you felt too small. Ever reach out for the stars? It's hard sometimes from where you are, cause they seem so far. And the weather turns cold, and the fire burns gold, and a little white snow starts to fall. 